I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Okay, uh, I believe I'm ready. I am ready too. Okay. Oh, sorry, Sam. Sometimes there's like cars that drive by really loudly, so <laughs> I'm just gonna like wait briefly. Can can we talk about how this all got started? Yeah. So, if I recall, we were having an outside-in meeting about the broadcast hour, and we should say for folks who are podcast listeners outside of New Hampshire, we do a broadcast hour of Outside In, which includes podcast content, but is a bunch of other stuff too. Yeah, so, and like we just come off the broadcast where we had a segment about racial inequality and access to nature, uh, in particular like redlining and its effects on heat pockets or, or, or um, hot areas of, of the city. And um, and so we talked about how a big reason for that is um, kind of the unequal distribution of trees in a city. Um, and so thinking about that and kind of at the same time, you know, this is like early June in New England, um, you know, things are falling off of trees. You know, you have these seeds that are kind of raining down on us and kind of thinking like, huh, like, okay, this is how trees propagate in nature, but how do trees propagate in the city? And so we talked about trying to explore that idea a little bit more. Right, and you asked us, is this a story that we've ever done on the podcast? Like, is, is there anything that you should look back to to see what we've already said about it? Right. And I think we we were immediately like, oh yeah, we've got this great episode. It's one of our very earliest. People really liked it. The ginkgo episode. Um, and that's because the ginkgo tree, it's a very popular urban tree. It's really resilient. And so urban tree planters choose it quite frequently. And so we were like, we love the ginkgo episode. Check it out. Yeah, exactly. And so then I went to check it out and I was pretty excited to go listen to it because, you know, I mentioned in that meeting like, oh, I have a personal experience with the ginkgo growing up, uh, but I don't really know much about the tree or the berries they produce. Um, So I was kind of excited to learn like, oh, like, you know, let's learn more about the ginkgo trees. So when you listened, what happened? 
When I listened, um, there was some wording that I found kind of upsetting. And I think, you know, it's, for me, I personally was, was like pretty ashamed of this because, uh, you know, it's, it's like a very clear indication of the types of blind spots that we have on the team. And we were just totally, totally unaware. And we just, we talked about it a bunch. We thought maybe that we should take the story down, that we should not play it again. But after a little more thought, a little more conversation, we decided that we should correct it and and reissue it. And uh, I was definitely on board with that. Like, I think one of the powers of personal storytelling is that, like, it really helps the listener, I hope, build empathy with the storyteller. And so, you know, I didn't think it would be enough to just say, like, oh, listening to this, parts of it made me upset. Like, I was hoping there might be a way that I could... Um, really tell my story to help understand why I would feel upset about some of the word choice. So I should say, listeners, that what you're about to hear has a bunch of swears, uh, which was part of the original problem with the original Ginkgo story. But also there is an ethnic slur. So heads up that if you've got kids, this, this might not be the best listening for them. Okay, take it away, Felix. They say that smell is the sense that most closely relates to memory. And when I smell ginkgo berries, it smells awful. And yet, I'm transported back to memories when I was a kid. Back to these road trips I would take with my family to Boston. We would go eat dim sum in Chinatown, explore the Museum of Science and visit my grandfather's grave at Forest Hills Cemetery. As a Chinese-American family, visits to the cemetery are not somber affairs. They're exuberant picnics. My uncles crack absurd jokes. Everyone laughs. We pour wine over the soil and talk to the deceased as if they're just there hanging out with us. And we eat some of my favorite foods. Barbecue pork, roast duck, soy sauce chicken, and egg tarts. And the reason why the smell of ginkgo berries brings me back there is because after one of these trips to the cemetery, when I was about five years old, we drove down the winding driveway under an October tree canopy as we were leaving the Forest Hills Cemetery. And the adults see something on the ground. And they stop, and they are excited. That's my Aunt Susan saying, wow, ginkgo berries, ginkgo berries, this is great. We can make desserts and soup. I call her because I don't remember all the details, so I need her to fill in the gaps. She says my mom, my dad, my other aunts and uncles, they all grabbed whatever plastic bags were in the car, got out and started scooping these things up. Now my sister, my brother and I, we were just kids, going along with whatever the plan was with these ginkgo berries. And the plan was to bring them to my grandma's apartment in Chinatown to clean them and eventually to eat them. Aunt Susan says the neighbors yelled at us. <laughs> it's so smelly. What'd you bring back? The neighbors said. I asked Aunt Susan, but aren't the neighbors Chinese too? <laughs> she said that's how they knew they were ginkgo berries. They yelled at us, don't pick ginkgo berries. Just go to the grocery store and buy them. Because at the store, they're already cleaned and processed, so they don't smell. Ginkgo berries are used in kanji, 
or Chinese rice porridge. Now, kanji isn't my favorite food, nor are ginkgo berries, but they're a comfort food for me. Something that my mom, who's since passed away, used to cook for us when we got sick. It reminds me of home, of family. Fast forward to a couple weeks ago, when we started planning to do a show on urban trees, and I found out that Outside In did a whole podcast episode on ginkgo trees in 2016 called Ginkgo Stink. And at first, I was really excited because I don't actually know all that much about ginkgo trees or ginkgo berries. All I know is what it means to me personally, that it reminds me of being a kid and going on these fun road trips to Boston and visiting my grandma, eating good food. So I went back and listened to the episode, which starts off with people describing the fruit. Well, the word ginkgo actually means white apricot in Japanese, uh, but I think they sort of look like oversized albino cherries. And the stench. Uh, a sewer. A pretty horrid. Or and that's familiar for me, because I can relate to how truly awful the smell is. berries, uh, stink berries. And then someone describes the fruit. She's written about ginkgo berries for the Washington Post. As shit fruit. That's another one. It's just so many. I mean, you... And Sam Evans Brown and Taylor Quimby, who produced the show, go on to call it so, shit fruit. Shit fruit. For the rest with shit fruit. of shit fruit. the episode. You just want to experience it. You want to broaden your horizons by sniffing the shit fruit. Each time I hear them say shit fruit, I tense up in my body. And by the end of the episode, I'm actually shaking a little. This is food that I eat and that my family eats. And the older Chinese immigrants I used to see when I first moved to Boston with their white buckets full of ginkgo berries that they eat, shit fruit. Hearing it called that, it hurts. It just brings me back to the part of my childhood when I was bullied for being Asian. So I call up Anita Manur. She's an associate professor of English and Asian American studies at Miami University in Ohio. I call her because I want to talk to someone about the visceral reaction I had to the episode and the history of what she calls culinary racism. She gave me an early example of this, an influential paper co-authored by the celebrated founder of the American Federation of Labor in 1902. Ahead of that, Samuel Gompers released uh, this now famous um, treatise called Meat Versus Rice. Mm. <laughs> which is the stupidest title of anything ever. <laughs> right. But basically one of the things he was making an argument for is that the presence of Asian labor drives down the value of American white labor, right? And so part of the reason Americans make for superior workers is that we are a class of meat eaters, whereas Asians are rice eaters. This treatise reflected cultural and racist fears about whiteness and manhood. Gompers had publicly advocated for the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which barred Chinese people from entering the country. And this sort of continues, right, in California in terms of, like, narratives of hygiene, right, saying that we um, need to make sure that Asians are sort of stay in place because they are contributing to the filth and dirt. Look at the things that they eat. There are these cartoons that depict Asians eating rats and things like that. Mm. Not unlike the kind of things that we are seeing now, you know, with COVID-19 of like Asians eating bats, et cetera, and all the, the sort of nonsense around wet markets. Anita says there's a long tradition of racializing immigrants as other, not just based on how they look, 
but how they smell. I mean, and this goes back to like even medieval Europe, right? There's this term photor judaicus, which basically comes from medieval Europe. That's this sort of idea that Jewish bodies give off an unpleasant smell, right? But it becomes part of a sort of a pervasive cultural logic mm. that um, reminds people that they don't belong. Anita and I both have personal experience with racist bullying. In fact, we spend a lot of our calls swapping stories about the racist bullying we experienced growing up. None of it was, like, food-related for me. Like, my experiences were typically, like, you know, I think what a lot of East Asians experience growing up is, like, white kids, like, pulling their eyes back and saying ching-chong. Or, um, you know, there was this weird incident when I was in second grade and my teacher said nobody has black hair to the class. And everyone was like, well, what do you mean? What about Felix? And she's like, oh, Felix doesn't count. (gasps) Oh, my God. Yeah. And then in middle school, I had a family friend and our vice principal called him a chink. So so those all terrible things, but like none of them really relating to food. I, I think my experience with food, with food racism has been more kind of in the realm of pop culture right? Like stereotypes of Chinese people eating dog or these days bats and civets, all sorts of weird things. And so in, in, in the Ginkgo Stink episode, hearing them all refer to it as shit fruit. Oh God. It's yeah. (laughs) That was disturbing when I heard it too. I had a visceral reaction to it. Yeah. Well, maybe um, tell me about your visceral reaction. Like what was that about? Yeah, so it's interesting listening to your history. Um, For me, it was the opposite. So my first experience in in a non-Asian place was in my school. And I remember that my mom would give me Indian food to take to school, right? This is a, I feel like this is a fairly typical story in what, at least in terms of what I've read in all of my research. and, you know, it was like this metal tiffin container and she'd put like rice and some kind of Indian curry. And I remember just being like, I hate it because people would be like, ew, what's that? What are you eating? You know, that looks so weird. So I remember asking my mom, I was like, could you not make this food for me? It's embarrassing. And so I remember like hurting her feelings pretty deeply. Mm. And she was like, okay, I'll, I was just like, well, what do you want? I was like, I was like, well, a lot of kids are eating tuna fish sandwiches. <laughs> so she was like, okay, I'll make you tuna fish. And like in my head, it was like tuna fish salad, right? Like white mayonnaise, whatever. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so, you know, so I, so she's like, you know, the day comes, I'm very excited that I have tuna fish sandwiches. (laughs) I open my lunchbox and I see these, this white bread. And in the middle of it is this bright yellow stuff. Because my mom has made tuna fish curry, which is by the way. And... (laughs) So it was just, and my friends were like, what is that? And Mm. I was like, it's tuna fish. And they were like, ew, it's gross. Why does it smell so bad? (laughs) And like, you smell like curry. And so Mm. to me, it just became this moment of not, because it was sort of like I had hoped it would be this moment of assimilation, right? Not calling attention to myself. But in fact, mm-hmm. it became this moment of failed assimilation, right? Because mm. I had taken the thing that was so familiar and done it so horrifically wrong. Mm. So then I became, you know, like even more of an outsider. 
Anita and I discuss a variety of Asian foods that have been subjected to this treatment. Indian curry, durian, natto. But with all those foods, smell is in the nose of the beholder. Especially if you grew up eating it, you may think that durian smells great. But when it comes to ginkgo berries, I'm reminded of my family and grandma's neighbors. All Chinese, all eat ginkgo berries and either love it or don't mind it. All say it smells terrible. So what's wrong with calling it shit fruit, if that's what it smells like? It just accesses a whole history of, 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 of racial narratives that sort of remind you of your otherness. And, and what can feel, in a sense, so profoundly alienating is to be told that you don't belong, not just because you look different, but because you smell different. So with ginkgo, I think it's something similar, right? That when the term shit fruit in particular is used, it, it feels like it's also... Um, you know, mapping onto the bodies of the people who eat those foods. I think about what Anita's saying and how stinky cheeses map onto the people who eat it. It's got the opposite cultural effect. Eating stinky cheeses gives you cultural capital. It exudes an air of class. No one calls stinky cheeses shit food. And that's just it. For me, it's one thing to say that ginkgo smells like shit versus saying ginkgo is shit fruit. Yeah, but that's, I think that's, I think that's a really good distinction, right? Sort of like the sort of like saying it is this thing, like yeah. that is what its profound essence is, as opposed to it smells like shit. Mm-hmm. My family only picked ginkgo berries that one time. Aunt Susan tells me it's just easier to buy them at the store. Already processed, no longer stinky. And it's been a long time since I've seen anyone else in Boston picking ginkgo berries. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported the same trend in an article called A Philly Tradition Fades, published in 2014. telling this story in the month of June. June is the month my mom passed away in 2013, and Forest Hills Cemetery is literally just a block away from where I live now in Boston. When I go there to visit my grandfather, my grandmother, and my mother, I still look over to the spot where the ginkgo trees used to be. And even though it smells bad, I still try to remember what the ginkgo berries smell like, because I don't want the memories to fade. I want them to linger. I want to remember. Okay, Felix, I think that we've said this to you in meetings and things already, but but here on tape, I just want to say I'm sorry that we, you know, that we got it so wrong. Like, we like to make jokes and laugh on this show, and we don't try to do that at anyone's expense, but it's pretty clear that in this case, we had done that. And uh, like I said, it really shows our blind spots, which is why I'm, I'm glad that you told us about it and and I'm also really glad that you were willing to do it in the way that you did which is like genuinely quite gentle and generous um so sorry and thank you yeah so um you know I I definitely feel like 
intent and outcome uh, are not the same thing. And um, again, it kind of speaks to the blind spot you were talking about. Like if you haven't had this kind of personal experience with ginkgo berries or or racist bullying that, you know, to call ginkgo berries shit fruit uh, is just kind of, you know, it's it's not a big thing. Right. But like with my experience that just tapped into, you know, feeling alienated for being different. And this is kind of the work that has to be done right now. I'm I'm hopeful seeing this moment uh, that white people are starting to educate themselves. But um, sometimes it does fall on people of color to have to step up and tell their stories um, and that we need to make space for people of color to be able to tell their stories. Um, so I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to to do that here in a way that could like center ginkgo berries as food um, in this story about ginkgo trees that was missing from the original episode. Yeah. And I think like in particular, I'm really grateful because you didn't have to. Right. <laughs> like, like you could have just sort of, uh, you know, um, shut us down and said this episode really ought not to be aired. So so the fact that you were willing to to, as you say, do this work is something, like I said, I'm really grateful for. And I think I think, uh, you know, I hope the I hope everyone in the audience is grateful for it, too. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I'm really happy. Well, I don't know if happy is the right word, but like I, <laughs> I, I think it's a good thing to continue the conversation, to not shut the conversation down. You know, at, at the end of the day, I feel like it was except for the word choice. The episode was was pretty good. It was well researched. It was uh, it was really interesting to listen to. Um, so I, I didn't feel like taking it down was really the right answer. So here then is a remastered, remixed, reworked version of the Ginkgo Tree story, which we now hope really does sound like a celebration of the amazing ginkgo tree. That's after a break. Hey, Nate here. Have you ever dreamed of going on the voyages of some of the most famous and not-so-famous explorers in history? If so, then you should check out the Explorers podcast. Host Matt Breen takes you into jungles and frigid wastelands, across deserts and oceans, and to the top of great mountains as you explore the triumph, glory, and tragedy of each explorer. There are extraordinary stories of Shackleton, Magellan, Cook, Lewis and Clark, and so many other daring people from all across the world and from throughout history. Each explorer's story is told in rich, immersive detail. And each topic is given as much time as needed to tell the whole tale, ranging from 30 minutes to 10 hours. There's something for everyone. Find the Explorers Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or go to explorerspodcast.com to learn more. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And for this next section, producer Taylor Quimby will be guiding the story. Um, so this is a story that could start in a lot of places, I think. But, um, 
I'm going to start with this guy named Mike Rafferty. Yes, I'm Mike Rafferty. I live in Chicago in the Lakeview neighborhood. He works downtown. Uh, I do computer work for a financial institution here. And part of his daily commute to work used to take him alongside the University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, a basic college campus type environment. There's lovely trees and, and some open green space. And uh, hanging over the street on the grounds of the campus is this big, beautiful ginkgo tree. Now, have you ever, have you ever seen one? I So I think there was one on campus at the college that I went to. They're most recognizable because of the leaves. So their leaves uh, have this very distinctive fan shape that is unlike any other leaf of any other tree. And they're considered to be just incredibly beautiful trees. Got it. Okay, so Mike, uh, Mike Rafferty, he walks by this tree every day. A very pleasant walk most days. Except... In the fall, these lovely ginkgo trees, which were perfectly nice trees most of the year, would start uh, dropping these smelly, stinky uh, pods. pods. Uh, these like fruit berry thingies. Down on the sidewalk and grass that I had to walk through. Can you help? So, what do they look like? Well, the word ginkgo actually means white apricot in Japanese, uh, but I think they sort of look like oversized albino cherries. But yeah, they they stink really, really, really bad. They smell like vomit, I guess. <laughs> uh, like uh, a sewer. It's pretty horrid. Or some people say they smell like poop. I've heard the berries called um, vomit berries. This is Sadie Dingfelder. Uh, she's written about ginkgo berries for the Washington Post. It's just so many. I mean, you, it's like you walk and it's like little pebbles everywhere. And not only do they smell awful, but they're slippery. You step on them. They, like, coat your shoes. It would get in the gutter uh, of the street. They sort of smush under your feet nicely. Cars would drive through it, smash it, grind it up. It makes it sound like these sidewalks are like a battlefield. It, it is certainly a public nuisance if you had a family in a home throwing stuff like that out there on the sidewalk. I can pretty much guarantee the city would be there ticketing you every day for doing so. Now, you may not have put much thought into this, but this tree, uh, it wasn't always here. You know, like every city tree was planted right where it stands for a very specific purpose. It's not an accident. So if this tree is such a colossal pain in the nostrils, why are people still planting it? Is it worth it? Well, that is kind of the question I'm going to try and answer in this story. And to do it, I'm going to tell you about... One American city that's been grappling with ginkgo stink for a century and reveal why we started planting them in the first place. So you're going to try to answer my question? What are you, why are you giving me flack? This, you, you know we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't complicated. <laughs> so it's a fruit that smells like vomit. It's technically not a fruit because they're gymnosperms. They're not angiosperms. That is the voice of Tom Kimmerer. Now, he is a tree physiologist, and he's our ginkgo expert for this story. Uh, we can call it a fruit for our purposes. Uh, it smells like dirty sweat socks, and, uh, and that's not a coincidence. The, uh, the odor is the odor of butyric acid, which is what accumulates in dirty sweat socks. Butyric. Yeah. Do we know what that comes from? The word? Yeah. No. I, I, I don't even know how to spell it. Yeah. <laughs> butyric. How do you pronounce the acid? Butyric, butyric acid. Butyric acid. B-U-T-Y-R-I-C. Butyric acid. Now, Tom explained to me that one reason that this issue is so divisive is that not all ginkgos have this berry problem. And that's because, and this is very important, ginkgos are what we call dioecious. What, what does it mean? Dioecious, that is, 
they have uh, se- sexes on separate trees. So there are male ginkgos and there are female ginkgos. And only the female trees produce the berries. Now, dirty sweat socks aside, there are a ton of reasons to plant a street tree. They beautify the city, of course. Uh, they reduce traffic speeds. They increase walkability. They reduce crime, all of which means better economic growth in downtown areas. And like I said, ginkgos are gorgeous. You remember Sadie? Hi, I'm Sadie. I remember Sadie. Well, Sadie lives in Washington, D.C., and she loves ginkgos. Since they drop all their leaves all at once in the fall, they just carpet the city sidewalks with gold. You know, it's like it's like living in the gilded capital. Um, It's really beautiful. Now, D.C. has had a pretty sizable population of ginkgos since at least the 1870s. Our Department of Agriculture was an early pioneer. They loved ginkgos. Um, They planted 90 ginkgos that lined the pathway um, to their front doorsteps. Today, there are thousands of ginkgos in D.C., including 925 females. So in the fall of 2014, the female ginkgos started fruiting, as they do every year, and Sadie decides to write about it for the Washington Post Express, which got her wondering, how many other reporters have written about this same problem over the years? I decided to look back into our archives and... She says that the newspaper has published an article referencing its ginkgo trees every year. Well, at least one um, since 1904. Here's just one example. December 27, 1914, it says, There's not much spooning in the moonlight around the ginkgos after the first part of October, unless a lass and a swain happen to be employees of a tannery or some other highly scented place. (laughs) News writing's really, really gone downhill since those days. I know, hasn't it? In D.C., um, you can actually, if you get 60% of the people on your city block to sign a petition, you can get a female ginkgo tree removed and replaced with a male ginkgo tree, um, which seems like sexism, obviously. But uh, it's also, like, very divisive in neighborhoods. Like, some people, you know, are so offended by these berries that it seems like a no-brainer. And other people are like, these are beautiful trees. Like, you know, we need to protect them. I'm not cut them all down. So let's recap here. In Chicago, you have one guy complaining about a stinky ginkgo tree, but it's not really a widespread problem, so nobody really cares. As far as I know, the trees are still there. Sorry, Mike. In D.C., you can have a female ginkgo tree removed if you can corral the whole block into signing a petition. That's not easy to do. In some smaller cities, Iowa City, Easton, Pennsylvania, for example, they've just chopped most of their female ginkgos down or banned them from being planted altogether. But probably the most ridiculous solution comes from Seoul, South Korea, where the ginkgo is actually the official tree. They planted thousands of them uh, in like the early 70s. They started getting complaints every fall until they started cutting them down. Now, I've read different accounts. It looks like they still have at least 140,000 ginkgos on their streets, Uh, many of them female. Every year, they deploy more than 440 workers who pick all of the berries before they fall to the ground. (laughs) This costs thousands of dollars. It is a huge, huge manpower problem. It's crazy. So the, the the fruit's not edible, is it? Well, there is a nut inside the fruit that is edible once it's been processed, uh, and it's used in some Asian soups and congee or eaten as a snack. And it should be said that arguing over the berries, which, yes, do smell, is one thing, but making fun of or othering food from another culture or region of the world is not okay. And to break the fourth wall here for a minute, I said some insensitive things in a previous version of this story that did that very thing, 
We labeled the ginkgo berry as something gross and other. We called it a quote-unquote fruit a bunch of times. And, and in the process, we hurt people for whom the ginkgo berry is a part of a cultural tradition. This was not my intent. I feel terrible about it. So we've cut those bits out, but we don't want to paper over our mistake either. Ginkgo berries may smell, but that doesn't make them shit. And to anybody that heard that first version, I am really sorry. I'm committed to being more thoughtful about how I approach my stories, and we as a team are committed to being more careful about our editing process going forward so that it doesn't happen again. So to get back to the story here about the ginkgo as an urban logistics problem, you've got some folks arguing that the female trees should be cut down others who like them, and some who are bypassing the discussion and taking matters into their own hands. So, Sam, you remember Tom Kimmerer? Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to you from the University of Kentucky campus, and there was a female ginkgo at a fraternity house, and late one night the boys girdled the tree and killed it. And I think that's pretty common for people to vote with their chainsaws against female ginkgos. We've, we've all stepped in dog poop at some time. And we try to get people to clean up after their dogs, but they don't always. And there's always dog poop in our landscape. We don't say, oh, there's dog poop in our landscape. Let's get rid of all the dogs. Well, that's what we're saying about ginkgos. So cutting them down is sad, but, but if they're so controversial, why would a city want to plant them in the first place? So to answer that question, uh, you have to go back a couple hundred years. <laughs> uh, yes, it, it, and it actually starts in, in England uh, in the early to middle 19th century. And at that time, there was like more than a million London residents. All of them are burning coal. Uh, you know, you, you read about the London fogs or you see them in Sherlock Holmes videos. Uh, that wasn't fog, that was smog, that was air pollution. And it was so bad that it was like killing people because of respiratory illnesses, but it was also killing all the trees hmm. in the city. Ginkgos had been found in, in uh, China found by Western botanists. They'd always been known by Chinese botanists. And they planted them at Kew Gardens, which is like this big, gorgeous botanical garden in London that's been there for ages. And those ginkgo trees just thrived where all these other trees were dying. So it, it gained the reputation in Europe as being a tree that tolerated air pollution. It also tolerated the kinds of soil compaction and other uh, problems that, that city trees often have. So ginkgos are these superhuman survivor trees. In fact, after we dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima during World War II, there were six ginkgo trees that were located right near the epicenter of the blast. And you can see pictures where, I mean, the landscape is just destroyed. But those trees sprouted new leaves shortly after the blast, and they're still alive today. That's insane. Yeah. And it's a fact. Yes. So, okay, so they're they're just incredibly burly. They can handle nuclear bombs. They can handle <laughs> they can handle horrific coal pollution. They can handle terrible soil. Yeah, and aside from humans, they can also handle all of the living things that might potentially try and kill them too. What do you mean? Well, ginkgos are what we call a living fossil. Do you know what that means? It, we thought it was extinct, but it's not. Not quite. It means that it's a living species that is also on the fossil record because that living species has changed so little that it existed in a nearly identical state thousands or in some cases millions of years ago. So alligators, sharks, horseshoe crabs, those are all different types of living fossils. And ginkgo is one of our oldest living fossils on record. Ginkgo's ancestors go back like 270 million years, which is 40 million years before the first dinosaurs. Back then, at its height, ginkgo 
covered the Northern Hemisphere. So basically what Ginkgo did was it retreated from being worldwide in distribution to these little tiny patches in China and essentially outlived all their enemies. I'm sure at one time, uh, I'm sure that you could look at fossilized ginkgo leaves and find evidence of insects that fed on them and, and fungi that grew on them. Those are all gone now. They have effectively no insect or disease problems. And, and that really does matter. So even if you're not in you know, 19th century London or you're like in post-World War II Hiroshima, like urban trees, trees that live on our city streets do not have a long life expectancy. Trees that are capable of living hundreds or even thousands of years in a forest may only survive for a few years in the urban landscape. There's the soil compaction. Damaged by mowers. There's diseases. Damaged by fertilizers and herbicides. Bugs. And pesticides. There was a study from 2006 that showed that as many as 63% of urban trees in Philadelphia were dead or removed within 10 years. Ginkgo is like this dinosaur, like a Tyrannosaurus rex that got plucked from the past and stuck on a savanna. Today, nothing knows how to kill it. It's the apex tree. It is the apex tree of millions of years ago yeah. and somehow still today. Yeah. And as far as a lot of urban foresters are concerned, like, there's really no downside to planting a ginkgo as your street tree. And this is why uh, Manhattan, Tokyo, big cities around the world are planting hundreds and in some cases thousands of ginkgos. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Shoot. If one of the only downsides to planting ginkgo trees in cities is the smell of the berries, and and only the females produce berries, why not just plant males? Well, for years now, that is what people have been doing, or trying to do anyway. But the problem is, you can't tell whether a ginkgo tree is male or female until it matures. And that can take like 20 years. So what plant nurseries do is they find a male tree and they clone it. Uh, Technically, it's called grafting. It's not a very complicated process. Um, But this way, anyway, nurseries can sell a city hundreds or even thousands of young trees, all of them exact copies of the male that they originally cloned in the first place. So that sounds pretty good. Uh, Yeah, but once you start digging into the ginkgo question, you'll find a number of cities who thought they were planting all certified male clones in the 80s or the 90s, only to find, 20 years later, some of the trees are female. So are the nurseries lying or something? Uh, That's a possibility, but probably unlikely in most cases. Um, It's also possible that the nurseries have just screwed up the grafting process and they're accidentally selling a few female trees here and there. But there is another reason that even if they clone the trees perfectly, cities will still end up dealing with the stink problem. And that is? Well, first, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen Jurassic Park, Sam? So Jurassic Park used to actually be my favorite movie. And as a as a 12-year-old, I used to watch it, finish it, and then rewind it to watch it again. So, yes. Okay. Well, in that case, then you are probably going to remember that in Jurassic Park, there was a containment measure that they had so that the dinosaurs would not breed on the island. The, the containment measure was that they made sure they only had female dinosaurs. We control their chromosomes. It's really not that difficult. <laughs> 
<laughs> I didn't know exactly what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and Jeff Goldblum, the guy, he's a very cool, you know, like hip mathematician character, was all like, you know, if there's one thing that evolution taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life, life uh, uh, finds, finds a way. <laughs> and of course, later in the movie, you know, uh, uh, Grant, played by Sam Neill, and those two little kids are, you know, like trucking through Jurassic Park. They're all beat up. You know what this is? And sure enough, it's a dinosaur egg. The dinosaurs are breeding. So just to be clear, in Jurassic Park, you have a population of genetically cloned organisms, all of them bred to be female, but then some of them spontaneously change sex and they start producing offspring. And, well, basically, that's what happens with the ginkgo trees. They just switch. There's some that just switch. Trees, like fish, can occasionally change sex. Uh, we don't know the frequency of that sex-changing ginkgos, but my suspicion is that most of the female ginkgos that we see in the landscape today were actually planted as males. But regardless, this is all one way of saying that no matter how reliable the nursery is, like no matter how well you clone the males, no matter if you spray the trees, it doesn't matter how hard you shake them, like you cannot guarantee with all our human ingenuity that we can only plant male trees and get what we want out of a ginkgo without a chance of getting what we do not want, which is a bad smell. Hmm. Nature wins. Yeah. Malcolm was right. Life found a way. There's a part of me that thinks, how awesome is this? Like, how awesome is this dinosaur of a tree that produces a fruit that once upon a time may have been eaten by a stegosaurus mm-hmm. and spread around that way? Like, that is the point, the point of the, the smell is probably to attract some sort of animal that is long extinct that would eat it, then go somewhere else, poop it out, and spread the seeds. Oh, so that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Like, why, why, why this is advantageous to have something really smelly? That might smell delicious to a stegosaurus. Exactly. And there's, so there's something about the fact that this tree exists in our landscape at all that is so incredible. And rather than just see it as, like, an ornament to be, you know, strung up for our convenience, I want to think of it as a uncontrolled living organism that is both beautiful and smelly and reminds us of our place in the world. Because ginkgos, as incredibly successful as they were historically speaking, they are, for all practical purposes, extinct in the wild. But there are thousands and thousands of them across cities all over the place. This is like Jurassic Park. It's like a, it's like a reminder of the world that used to be here.
This episode of Outside In was produced by Felix Poon, Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, Molly Donahue, Logan Shannon, Megan Tan, and me, Sam Evans-Brown. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and the Daniel Pemberton TV Orchestra. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Please remember that we have a newsletter. If you're interested in signing up, you can head over to our website, outsideinradio.org. Also, hit us up on all the social medias. We'd love to hear from you there. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you.